you seek the key. But first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. It's Jim Cramer here. You're listening to the opening bell of CNBC's Squawk on the Street. Don't miss a minute of the action. Good Tuesday morning. Welcome to Squawk on the Street. I'm Carl Quintanilla with David Faber, Mike Santoli of Post 9 of the New York Stock Exchange. Kramer has the morning off. Coming off our first back-to-back S&P gains of the month, futures look to give a little bit back at the open as we await some of this week's high-profile inflation data, beginning with jolts in about an hour, 10-year 422. A roadmap begins with, as we said, first back-to-back gain since July. Still on pace, though, for the worst month of the year. Plus, drug price stocks, the White House names Merck, Amgen, AbbVie products amongst the first 10 drugs for the first ever direct negotiations between Medicare and those manufacturers. And Commerce Secretary Raimondo making her way to Shanghai this hour. This as she continues that four-day trip overseas. We will take you live to China. Let's begin with the markets as we start talking about the month of September. Uh, yesterday, Mike, it was Sam Stovall who said, look out, it's the month yeah. where you're more often down uh, than up. Although uh, Bespoke now says when you're up double digits yeah. uh, going into September for the year to date, yes. not nearly as bad. Usually strength uh, on some level begets further strength. I feel like we've been hyper-focused on the seasonal stuff this year. It's worked. That's part of the reason. Uh, but we also peaked in the S&P 500 literally on July 31st. So it went right to script. Um, there have been a bundle of years where you did have it a week August followed by a week September. So it's not as if you get one or the other. That said, I think it's going to have to be about more than just the calendar and working off the rally that we uh, we had going through July. I was just looking at the valuation levels as well as the uh, absolute market levels at the end of July. So we the S&P 500 got up to the kind of peak for this rally of like 19.7 times forward earnings. Since then, uh, market's down a few percent. Uh, let's call it, you know, three and a half percent since the closing high. Uh, you've had the forward earnings forecast for the S&P 500 go up two and a half percent. So it's moderated the valuation to like 18 and a half. Not cheap, but it's definitely, if you needed to come off the boil there, it has done so. Uh, 10-year treasuries over that span have gone from 395 to 422. So everything seems very rational. I think this two-day rally we've got in the S&P, if nothing else, has prevented the market from looking like it's breaking down hard. There were some levels that maybe you didn't want to test below. Uh, and, you know, so here we are. We're kind of still stuck in the middle, still between catalysts, um, and still not cheap and didn't get super oversold. And, and you know, the market, we, we got no panic. But who knows if you always need that? You know, 5% pullbacks happen sometimes. Mike, uh, we, we, uh, Carl and I discussed this a bit yesterday. You know, last week we were so focused on NVIDIA earnings. Yeah. Um, they arguably were as good as they possibly could have been, including the guidance. And so many saying it's got ramifications far beyond just NVIDIA. Stock has gone nothing but sure. down since, more or less. Yeah, yeah. Anything to learn from that? Yeah, I mean, I think that the rule of thumb is worth heeding that if you fail to go up on really good news, it shows you that the market had priced some good stuff in. Um, you didn't have that extra lift. People were positioned for it. Maybe there's some, you know, people willing to, to kind of sell into it. And certainly it looks like that outside of NVIDIA. If you look at where Microsoft and Apple are, they're in these little 
you know, 10 percentage corrections off their highs. Uh, nothing crazy, but I think even if you, the stocks don't immediately go up on good news, the news was still good. And that's why I think that the fundamental basis of what's going on, if you really believe the longer term story and you believe the fact that everyone's ramping their earnings estimates for NVIDIA, um, it doesn't necessarily mean game over. It just means like, look, we, we, we pulled forward a lot of the excitement uh, into those valuations. And now, you know, maybe has to get worked do you ever Do you ever get a sense for the, um, the influence of enormous firms like D.E. Shaw, uh, Citadel, Two Sigma, which I don't know what percentage of the volume on any yeah. given day they represent, but it has to be enormous. And whether their algorithms somehow are behind so many of these kinds of moves. I mean, I think you assume there are a huge amount of the short-term trading flow, I think. Um, they are very catalyst-oriented, typically, and they're very, like, we want to, you know, we want to get to the second and third derivative indicator of where the market and where the fundamentals are going before somebody else. I don't think it's just pure trading the, uh, trading the noise. It's mm -hmm. actually looking for, like, these multi-manager uh, hedge funds, you know what I mean? Like the pods, as they call them. Massive amounts like millennial, of new yeah. AUM, of yeah. assets under management. Massive amounts of volume. And I do think it's incredibly kind of this risk-conscious high turnover, let's get to the, the, the smart trade before the other guy gets to the smart trade. I don't think I see it in the day-to-day -day in you terms don't? of... Yeah, I just wonder sometimes, you know, because I think sometimes we fail to acknowledge just how incredibly... No, it's, I don't mean I don't, I don't see it. I don't see it thematically as being directionally relevant, as being something that's the tail wagging the dog. I see it as the faster version of the fast money mm -hmm. that's trying to be smarter and it might be a little more sophisticated and is willing to just also cut their losses and get and get out and and they reallocate capital toward what's working so there's a little bit of a short-term self-reinforcing momentum flow but um, I don't think you can actually discern it well enough to know if that's what's you know that's what the marginal buyer or seller is on a given yeah. moment I do wonder whether or not you think there's the ingredients for another uh, echo of an AI chase uh, you got the journal today talking about market share battles between Microsoft yeah. and Google we'll get Google next this week you got chat GPT for business um, upgrade of Oracle today, which we'll get to. And then, you know, who's really positive on this stuff is our friend Jim Cramer. Yeah, of course. Who says that uh, NVIDIA, among others, are ready to run. Sure. Um, I mean, I, the ingredients are absolutely there. Um, it's the only multi-year um, growth story, open-ended, that you can really latch onto right now that's pervasive. That's everywhere. Uh, I think it's between AI and the anti-obesity drugs in terms of what's going to change the world more, what's going to hurt more competitors that don't get on board or don't have an answer for it. Um, I don't know how it plays in the near term in terms of if we're just going to wait for next earnings season. Uh, September is a month, not just weakness in general, but when you might sometimes see downward earnings revisions to in companies in general, in part it's because you had a lot of deferred maintenance. People aren't around in August and they don't update their models. I don't know that the, that the direction of, of revisions has to be very negative. We actually are, are firming up on the, on the consensus and, and I think AI is a piece of that. I just don't know how to quantify it. When it does come to the end use cases, of course, that is a key for the investment thesis behind NVIDIA that you can't just keep buying the chips forever without actually getting some return yeah. at some point. It's early days, obviously, and it's going to be years until we truly know. And the companies that are putting all of that firepower to work will know. But it is interesting, Carl, to note chat GPT Enterprise has been introduced. Um, and, uh, you know, we'll see how it competes with, interestingly, Microsoft's Copilot, 
which is also a, a generative AI tool for the enterprise, 30 bucks a month there. Uh, and of course, Microsoft is the largest single investor, really yeah. has provided much of the capital that has allowed ChatGPT to actually run those large language models that it needs to to, actually, to, to create that engine. I mean, if I look, if you look at NVIDIA's treasure, it's just mostly holding the gains. I mean, yes, it's trimming around the edges. Mm-hmm. It went above 500 for a little bit, but it's not a change No, but the story. multiples come down, hasn't it, yes. since last week? Yeah, because exactly. the numbers have gone up so much. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so I almost think that, that the stock kind of going sideways as it has is registering that, you know, back, background concern that this is not a replicable growth rate, that this is kind of a, a front-loaded build-out. Yep. Uh, not saying it is, but I'm saying it's registering some of that, you know, maybe we can't, you know, extrapolate this earnings pace forever, but I think it's held in fine. Yeah. Uh, moving on to China, Commerce Secretary Gina Raimondo is headed to Shanghai. This is part of her four-day trip to China. Earlier today, she met with that country's vice premier. While emphasizing the importance of U.S. national security, the secretary said Washington does not seek to decouple or hold China's economy back. Of course, our focus of late has been on all the various things that are holding China's economy back and what that's going to mean for the world economy, for its continued ascension. The idea doesn't, we don't hear it quite as often of uh, China quickly dethroning the U.S. as the world's number one economy as we did even just a couple of years ago. Yeah, for sure. And it's, there's a, a daily policy announcement or an effort or gesture that says, look, we really mean it. We want to get things rolling. Um, want to get consumers there energized. I think that's the big part of it. You know, you, you kind of, the, the authorities pushing on a string, so to speak, with getting people to aggressively consume. Uh, and then there's the ambivalence of the government itself, not really wanting to have that be the growth story right. in general. The markets, they've had a lot of these sort of fleeting, fizzled rallies overnight. But, you know, it's, it's, it's not falling apart at the moment. The Journal has a piece today. How oh, it's cheap, right? It's, it's got cheap. Things it's now cheaper. value we had managers. To, we had yeah. uh, Brennan Ahern yesterday from Crane Shares. They have a few ETFs talking about that very thing, saying, yes. hey, now it's a better time to buy. The growth managers have sold it to the value managers. And then a lot of times that's not instant gratification because value managers, you know, they live in pain for the most part until finally things get cheap enough. But uh, no, it is uh, it is interesting. But it's not, you know, Chris Verone over at Strategis, though, is pointing out iron ore and copper and things that usually really break down when stuff is going poorly in China uh, and is really going to reverse uh, in terms of the economy is not really breaking down. So maybe it seems like, you know, the headlines aren't aren't encouraging. The market's been stubbornly uh, lagging, but uh, it, it might not be that big a change in terms of the overall underlying growth. We'll see. Uh, it's interesting. Ramonda's given us a steady diet of headlines, especially today, uh, says that she's been hearing increasingly from businesses in this country that China's uninvestable uh, yeah. because of the uncertainty. It does feel maybe like some of the best traction is happening in travel and tourism, yeah. where if China, Ramondo argues, were to return to 2019 levels, probably add $30 billion to the economy, 50,000 jobs. Sure. Uh, they're trying to work on more direct flights, waiting which on, was something else. Waiting on that, the Boeing. Yeah, and waiting on Boeing. Approval as well. Chinese. So who knows if that was considered to be maybe the, the capper for all this. Yeah, all this is happening on this train ride uh, between Beijing and Shanghai. Uh, the Commerce Secretary did talk to members of the press en route, that high-speed train. And Eunice Yoon is on the train with the Secretary's delegation and joins us with more. Hey, Eunice. Hey, guys. Well, the Commerce Secretary, as you had said, is on this train. Her delegation is behind me, and she told us reporters 
within the past hour that she believed that the U.S. and China are at a moment and that she hoped that this becomes a moment of action. Uh, she credited the uh, diplomatic uh, flurry of activity uh, by the Biden administration since mid-June um, with getting it to this point where she did meet with the Chinese premier, as you had pointed out, the vice premier um, who handles economic affairs, her Chinese counterpart at the commerce ministry, as well as the tourism minister, all speaking for several hours over these past two days to get to what she described as good deliverables for the U.S. business community. Um, one of them is one I mentioned before, uh, the working group that she said would address specific commercial interests and meet twice a year, an export controls information exchange, uh, which already met uh, today and is a way to help, um, from her perspective, have the Chinese become more compliant after discussing those export controls. Uh, she with her tourism, the tourism minister here, agreed to a U.S.-China tourism leader summit in the, the first half of next year. And this was actually shelved because of the pandemic. But most importantly, she said for her personally, what she thought was really important was that her counterpart agreed to informal and frequent discussions and exchanges. And she pointed out to us that the Commerce Secretary um, has not been out in China for the past five years. So she was saying they had very little communication uh, with the Chinese on her level, and now it looks as though things are opening up. And from her perspective, she says that one of the big complaints from the U.S. business community has been that there haven't been enough lines of communication. Guys? Eunice Yoon uh, on her way to Shanghai. We'll see what other headlines we get. I think uh, the secretary might be visiting uh, Shanghai Disney tomorrow. Uh, talk a little bit more about travel and tourism. And then we'll talk about the degree to which it really is cheap uh, yeah. relative to the rest of the world. Uh, both uh, both Chinese stocks and Disney, maybe, yeah. <laughs> in, that, in yeah. that regard. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's, I don't think there's any doubt that it's cheap. The question is, are you implicitly capped? by, uh, you know, the, the way the economy is, is a little bit hamstrung right now and the way that pe the, the government doesn't seem to want to have national champions and have these big companies accrue a lot of wealth for folks. So, you know, those are the big questions. Well, they want national champions or just state-owned enterprises, right, not the private right. companies. They don't want right. them to be right. global champions right. in a sense. Yeah. yeah. What's That's also interesting is the degree to which, I mean, the trade dynamic with the U.S. is not as strong as it is, say, with Germany. Right. where the discussion is getting quite serious about Germany's growth, not being able to lead Europe. Yes. Even as wages hit a new record high uh, today, 6-8 uh, year on year. Yes, and, and also I, I, you are starting to see, wait, do we really think Europe can, can be okay if China slows to, to this degree in terms of you know, its own economic path going into the winter? So. All right. We'll talk more about uh, what Shanghai is doing. As, uh, as Mike mentions, a lot of these efforts to goose the markets have uh, resulted in very short-lived rallies over there. Still to come, the Biden administration now with its first list of drugs that will be subject to Medicare price negotiations, what that means for consumers and, of course, the pharma industry. Take a look at the pre-market here. We'll see if the bulls can string three wins in a row together. A lot more squawk on the street is straight ahead. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. 
Tasty Trading is a registered broker dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. The White House announcing its list of the first 10 drugs selected for Medicare price negotiations in an effort to lower health care costs. Our Emily Wilkins joins us with details on what some are arguing, Emily, is a pretty historic move. Carl, it's definitely a historic move. This is the first time that the government will negotiate with drug manufacturers over the price of medication in an attempt to lower costs for consumers. The 10 drugs that were named this morning include medication for cardiovascular issues, diabetes, autoimmune disease, and cancer. Now, these 10 drugs, they were picked in part based on how much seniors were spending on them. The White House estimates those on Medicare spent $3.4 billion in out-of-pocket costs on these medications alone. Jakita Brooks-Lasher, the administrator for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, told CNBC this morning that she is mindful of ensuring that research and development costs for manufacturers will also be considered when negotiations occur. We want to make sure that it's a viable market for drug manufacturers because, again, we know we have the, sh the shared goal of making sure people have access to treatments, and we want to make sure that we have a strong and vibrant uh, drug market. No one wants to see anything different than that. But we cannot ignore that we are not on a sustainable trajectory. The reduced prices won't go into effect until 2026, but these medications are only the first to be negotiated. Another 15 drugs will see their prices hashed out in both 2027 and 2028, and from 2029 onward, 20 drug prices can be negotiated per year. Drug manufacturers are pushing back against this change. A number of companies, including Johnson & Johnson and Merck, have already sued the government, claiming that the negotiations are unconstitutional. Back to you. Uh, Emily, thanks for that. Uh, Emily Wilkins joining us on, uh, on the drug negotiations. Guys, I was trying to think what's probably the most well-known of the brand names. Seems like Eliquis and Genuvia might be up there. Yeah, yeah? Uh, no doubt. I mean, obviously the real revenue impact is, is down the road. It's much more about what you know, incentive structures are created in terms of what drugs get developed. I think that's very long tail stuff. But in general, if there's a, uh, you know, a popular move to uh, to, to try and limit inflation in, in some of the most widely used drugs. I think that's politically pretty smart, but then also it, it sort of gets the, uh, it gets it normalized to a degree where I think the industry is, is going to assume it can't just win all these. Right, you know? right. We'll see. I yeah. Mean, uh, and in terms of the CPI impact, we're going to have to wait a while. Yeah, exactly. Um, before it's these actually exactly hit the street. This is the one, yeah. Still to come this morning, a lot of the morning's movers, including Best Buy with an earnings beat. Take a look at the pre-market here, trying to inch our way out of the red on this uh, Tuesday morning. A lot more squawk in the street when we come back. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, 
The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Got some retail earnings to work with this morning. Best Buy with a quarterly beat. Sales declines were a bit smaller than expected due to demand for discounted items. Company offered some mixed guidance but says it believes this year will be the low point in tech demand. Uh, Mike, they talk about TV sales trends getting better, laptops getting better, uh, holiday comps uh, will improve and could potentially turn positive. Yeah, I would call it cautious guidance just in terms of bringing down the upper end of revenue and EPS uh, expectations, but not out of the range. Um, Very similar story with a lot of the kind of older chain retailers, which is they trade at super discounted, you know, price to sales ratios because the market assumes there's really not a lot of growth there over a cycle. Uh, In Best Buy's case, it's like, you know, under 0.4 times sales. Uh, It's 11 to 12 times earnings. It's a 5% dividend yield. All that bundled together says, yeah, it's the best in the category, but it's it's not a it's not going to be a fast growth category. Not really an inflation beneficiary uh, among uh, among the retailers. So, um, you know, not a bad performance. It's just kind of what over a multi-year time frame do you uh, expect out of it? And it's interesting too how we're still seeing various companies reckon with. Well, I guess there was a lot more pandemic pull forward demand than we thought last week. It was Dick's Sporting Goods to a degree. The street was sort of suggesting it was surprising. Pet food retailers are in that similar boat. So I'm not saying, you know, Best Buy seems to be reckoning with it and thinks that they're at the trough, but uh, it's, it's had a long tail. Yeah, they still see comp store sales to be slightly better than the negative 6.2% yeah. they recorded for this quarter, for this current quarter. Uh, and uh, second quarter, and the non-GAAP operating income rate to be about uh, a growth of 3.4%, to your point. That said, it's quite a few years ago that we were talking about this company being in uh, seminal decline as a result of, remember, showrooming? I mean, they did, you know, it is worth mentioning. It's obviously years ago already. You can go back and look, but they did manage to come off a very difficult period. Well, and to the point where it's almost in the other direction, now the question is, can any retailer get to scale without physical presence? And so all of a sudden, ubiquitous physical presence isn't automatically, you know, a sign of obsolescence. But again, it's a matter of how much growth can you push through uh, over over the number of years. Unlike Carl, unlike so many of the retailers whose earnings we've been going through closely to look at shrink, whether it's theft and or other, uh, not really uh, a key part of this uh, release, at least. Interesting. Of course, they benefited hugely from the uh, work-from-home trend uh, during the pandemic, and Goldman had a great note on work-from-home, now arguing that the sheriff workers who are working from home has gone from the peak at 47% down to 20 to 25. What's interesting is they think it's really not hitting office vacancy and won't for a couple of years because so many of those long-term leases don't expire until... 2025, where they say it could start adding a couple percentage points to vacancy rates. Yeah. It has been a slow push through that pipeline, um, I guess. I still think it's going to be hard when you have nine job openings, you know, for every unemployed person, at least on paper, to really budge the work from home thing. I mean, for now, the worker has enough say in the matter uh, that, you know, it's just not moving that quickly below a certain core. 
Amazon notwithstanding. Yes. We'll talk about what Jassy told employees yeah. reportedly in a moment. Opening bell here and the CNBC real-time exchange at the big board. It's Amaranth Bank Corp. based in Florida, celebrating its transfer to the NYAC from the NASDAQ. And at the NASDAQ, it's Simplayer's Tennis Channel celebrating the U.S. Open, which is kicking off one of the great there traditions of the end of summer here in New York City. Absolutely. 4430. Uh, support levels, uh, Mike. Uh, Fundstrat argues yeah. that really 4350-ish, yes. 56 is the danger zone. That was the August low, essentially, from I think the 18th. So it was a week ago Friday, uh, if I'm not mistaken, which was, yeah, in the 4330-ish range, between 43 and 4350, gets you back to these sort of late June levels. That's before we got that blast off into July. Um, other stuff comes together around there. But for now, that's what I meant by markets avoided a breakdown. Now, what does it take to really prove something on the upside? It's not that much. Probably you'd start to build the case if uh, we close above 4460-ish. That's where it looks like this downtrend line from the peak is coming in. So we're really arguing over small bits of territory at this point. Market is is still in the range, and everything is in the range. I think that's something that has enabled the market to hang together, which is, yep, bond yields have definitely been eye-catching, but not definitively far above the late 2022 highs on the 10s. They're kind of hovering right near there right now. Yep, two years also near the highs, but not busting through. Oil prices similar in retreat from a high end of the range in the mid to high 80s. Uh, even the dollar has been on a very strong run. We all know the reasons. But again, it's like this nine-month range. It's kind of been capped. So I think that's one of the reasons we haven't had to really recalibrate cross-asset valuations and messages that much, even though we can still argue all day about why bonds have moved the way they've moved. Is it just about growth being better? Is it about supply? Uh, is it about higher for longer from the Fed? Probably about all those things on some level. Uh, yeah, Fundstrat does argue support for the 10-year somewhere around 410, 415. Does it matter, uh, Mike, that yesterday's volume was the lightest of the year, uh, 8.1 billion shares across exchanges? Um, I would say it doesn't really matter. Um, I would say maybe you want to withhold a lot of credit for, for the, the strength of the, the rally in telling you that people are rushing back in. I think it's just August. Market-wide volumes, I haven't found a lot of information value in. Individual stock volume anomalies definitely seem to matter. They're a good input, uh, but it's just, I think it's mostly, you know, what we know, which is, uh, which is seasonal in- issues. Got some upgrades of things in uh, David's universe. David, did you watch this, uh, the city upgrade of Verizon NT? I did see it, yeah. Um, I did take a look at it. A better tomorrow. <laughs> Sorry, I don't yeah. mean to laugh. Uh, taking a more positive view on the AT&T fact that there is a tomorrow, I think, is the bold yeah, case. Yeah, I think that. You know? I think that just that's <laughs> risible right there. Yeah. Uh, just, uh, but there is. Uh, there's been nothing good about tomorrow. You want to go back 20 years? I don't even yeah. know at this point. I mean, it's sort of Pfizer-like when you look at Verizon over the last 20 years or Absolutely. AT&T. None yeah. of them have done anything for you as a long, long, long-term investor, other than give you a dividend. So, you know, you can look at the chart, but you do want to remember the, the ultimate return yeah. is larger, is better. And both Verizon and AT&T are in the 7 to 8% dividend yield range. And, you know, Citi makes the case that basically you have trough kind of washed out type valuations if you look at enterprise value to cash flow, very low end of their decade ranges, dividend yields, very high end of the ranges. 
also making the case that the potential lead exposures, whatever might have to be done to remediation Maybe or liability, less. Yeah. might be either less or priced in. Yeah, I think that's what they're saying. Yeah, there was some questions and continue to be questions about some of the reporting around that. And again, you know, we'll get more clarity as time goes on. I thought the interesting part of the note is that they simply say they see few factors that point towards a stabilizing wireless competitive landscape. Yeah. Uh, a few factors, I should yes. say. A few factors. And therefore, um, that is one reason that undergirds their uh, being more positive on the tomorrow for both. And even stocks. with that, I think they prefer T-Mobile yeah, because uh, of the competitive landscape. And we should yeah. note that T-Mobile last week, of course, did announce those significant yeah. layoffs, in part citing the fact that things were changing very quickly and they wanted to stay ahead of them. Uh, 7% of the workforce yeah. uh, it was, the, was the number from uh, T-Mobile in terms of those layoffs, not of front-end employees, a lot of back office operations and the like, but nonetheless was notable. We certainly did at the time. But yeah, T-Mobile's always seemingly the favorite. By the way, sometimes we forget, controlled by Deutsche Telekom. Yeah, right. Still worth mentioning. Uh, by far their largest single asset, Deutsche Tel, but uh, it's still a kind of a German-controlled wireless operator here in the U.S. Yeah, no doubt. Um, just looking at the leaders uh, in the S&P, you do have AT&T uh, up there as well as Best Buy. So Best Buy is taking that, uh, you know, the, the new guidance relatively as a net positive, up 3.3% to start, and then 3M, of course, uh, kind of uh, officially saying that they have an agreement on those uh, those liabilities regarding the uh, military earplugs, uh, and that stock, again, it's another one that's been just really washed out relative to the group, hasn't participated at all in the upside of industrials, kind of uh, a lot of skepticism about the, the pure conglomerate model, but, you know, uh, maybe some catch-up here as the stock is up another 2% today. Uh, yeah. Uh, banks got a lot of activity today. FDIC is going to vote on some proposals that would uh, affect regionals with assets of $100 billion and more. Uh, the head of supervision at the San Francisco Fed is going to retire at the end of October, of course, uh, was on guard uh, during Silicon Valley Bank. And yeah. then Goldman, uh, David, as they get rid of this uh, unit, uh, Mike Mayo over at Wells argues they're once again uh, getting back closer to core and undoing some of the expansionary changes that I guess Mayo was never a fan of. No. Uh, in fact, few investors seem to be an overall fan of them, of course, begun under Lloyd Blankfein, enhanced by current CEO David Solomon. But yes, that reversal was notable. Never amounted to much in terms of actual percentage of overall revenue or profitability at the firm, but certainly got a, has gotten a good deal of attention. Uh, when you put up the movers board there on the S&P, it was worth noting Catalan was at the top. Remember this company that helps... Uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies do their drug trials, for example. Um, subject of an activist campaign from Elliott. They got a lot of board members now on there. Um, Stephen Barg, uh, Frank D'Amelio, Stephanie O'Key, or O'Key, and Michelle Ryan all join that company's board of directors. They also do sort of put out an earnings uh, picture that at least doesn't worry people. Midpoints of the initial 2024 top line guidance are up 5%. Uh, at least versus where the street was. Um, and then, you know, the question, of course, is what role will Elliott be playing here? How significant will it be, given all those board seats? Um, and is there M&A in the future of this company as well, I think has to be a key question. So you can see it is having a very positive impact. Speaking of M&A, do want to turn to one of our most active situations out there. Not huge in terms of dollars, but still kind of uh, profile, U.S. Steel. Uh, they put a new release out this morning just talking about the process as it's currently ongoing. Remember, of course, 
Cleveland Cliffs has tried to clear the field here, but doesn't seem to have been successful in doing so, despite announcing that potential agreement with the unions, sort of trying to make it a fait accompli that we're the only real buyer here. Mittal, as I've reported, others have, is in there. Um, and for its part, U.S. Steel wants you to know there's a lot of customary confidentiality agreements that are being signed with numerous third parties. And they are sharing some due diligence, focus on, they say, running that you see fair and competitive process for what they hope will be maximizing stockholder value. Uh, I can't tell you, it does seem to be fairly robust at this point. We'll have to wait and see, though, how that all plays out. Very important scene uh, for, uh, seen as very important potentially, Mike, for Cleveland Cliffs, yeah. electric furnaces, for example, which now will figure prominently in the perspective of those who are concerned about carbon uh, emissions and the like. Uh, U.S. Steel has them. Cleveland Cliffs wants more of them. Yeah. Uh, I'm still amazed at the relatively modest market caps across this whole industry. It's, it's quite amazing. Obviously, there's more to it than just the equity value. But, um, but yeah, it still seems big and strategic as an industry, despite everything else. Cleveland Cliffs making a pretty aggressive play. One other point, you know, you mentioned the Google um, Next conference started. It's, the stock's up at 1.4% again today. It's up a couple percent this week. It's basically bucked the negative trend in, in, in August. Uh, it's outperformed, you know, Meta by a lot, Microsoft by a lot. I know Jim was, was talking about it, too, uh, as being a bit of a standout uh, relative to other mega cap tech. And a lot of things maybe behind that. And, and you know, it could be sort of a resilience of the, the media strategy within within Google. Obviously, there's enthusiasm about the AI and what they might be able to tell us about cloud services uh, today. But it, it's pretty notable that it has uh, held its gains from, uh, from the first part of this year coming in. Um, you know, maybe it's a little bit of a halo of meta as well, because that was such a monster uh, move to the upside in the beginning part of this year that you had the, uh, you know, to the degree that they travel similar paths. Uh, some some bid there from uh, from Alphabet too. Yeah, I think it was the Goldman desk last week. It was like, what's up with Amazon lagging Google almost every yeah. single day? Uh, as we watch, there's a bunch of different dynamics you could point to, but AI is uh, certainly one of them. The other interesting point is uh, Senator Schumer going to be holding a meeting with uh, some, I think Zuckerberg and Musk, yeah. uh, talking about policy going forward. Uh, for AI, there's still a school of thought that says you're going to wind up with some international regulatory body long term uh, to figure out how to grow this thing responsibly. Yep, uh, I think so. I mean, I, I don't know how anybody, you know, plugs all this into the equation, especially when you have the policymakers still in a mode of asking industry leaders what this thing is and getting educated on it. And um, I don't know, it just seems like the, the concentration of expertise and and everything and is, is, is still with the, the private sector on it. But um, I don't know, you have to have a lot of assumptions about how big it's going to grow on its own without any, any uh, regulatory attention to know what the impact is going to be. But definitely, uh, definitely interesting. Also, of course, that the industry seems to be wanting to be in on the formation of whatever structure there is. Uh, you notice Tesla there at the bottom. Uh, some news in autos, uh, BYD earnings, uh, Peace and Barons, David, about VFS, yeah. which we talk about every day now, essentially looking at uh, the small size of the float and arguing that no one's really getting rich on it, even though uh, the market cap is, uh, what, number three? Yeah, it's enormous. And as I think we can just fairly say, it, it, it is not an accurate representation no. of the fundamentals of this company in any way. It is simply reflective of a shortage of shares because there are so few that actually trade, given the size of the actual SPAC transaction being so small. 99% of the shares are held by its founder. 
So you're talking about a minimal float, and that does contribute to every time we talk about it or somebody else does, that this thing is going to just run. And you yeah. can see the market cap is laughable. Um, it will change. That will change over time. If they were to try to actually sell shares at any level, it right. would not be here, Mike. No, exactly. Yeah. Um, it would not be here. Yeah, it's another lesson. I mean, it's a little bit of an echo effect of a lot of what went on uh, with, with some of the SPACs, but also with that added, um, you know, emerging market, secular theme. We saw what happened with Tesla when they, before they had product. I mean, all that kind of silly stuff loaded up into uh, the first instant that it starts to trade as opposed to building up over the course of eight years or whatever with Tesla. There's also uh, the continued discussion about the prospect of strikes at the big three. Uh, Adam Jonas and Morgan Stanley uh, last night talking about it uh, says the concern creates divergence and buying opportunity kind of goes through a bunch of reasons why um, these these cycles happen. Labor negotiations are, are part of the business cycle. Bottom line, we'd be a buyer of both Ford and GM right now. And during the negotiations, as we believe, even a difficult outcome can catalyze far bigger changes to strategy and capital discipline that will eventually yield long-lasting benefits, which is not at yeah. all the view of many. No, it's many. not. No, the view of many is that this is, this is going to uh, further stack the deck against the big two or three, depending on how you define it. Uh, in making this transition, uh, it also is always a tricky spot when you're your leader, your leader of Ford or GM, and you're making the case to the street that nope, we have the financial wherewithal to manage the EV transition. This is going to be fine. Uh, we're going to get there, and then you you know you have this where you have to go to the unions in a, in effect and say, hey, you can't cripple us here. You know, we have to be able uh, to have cost flexibility in order to do it. And if you get what you want, we won't be able to. So that's a a tricky dual message to try and deliver. So moderate gains here at the open. Dow's up 50. Only uh, energy and uh, industrials are lower. Let's get to Bob Pisani. Morning, Bob. Guys, uh, nice move three days in a row here. Um, the VIX is down two points since uh, Powell's uh, speech on Friday. So take a look at the sectors moving. China's in a periodic upswing, guys, uh, with the, uh, the Commerce Secretary over there. We see, oh, nice moves up here, about three, four days in a row, up about 5%. Tech's flat, banks flat, that's good. Communications up, that's because of uh, AT&T and Verizon, that city uh, upgrade. Uh, as for where we are on the month, it's really a tale of two different months. It's like two, first half of the month, the stocks were generally down because we had higher rates. The second half of the month, stocks are generally higher because we've had more stable rates. That's simply the way to look at things right now. Uh, the other big story is the AI and how to parse that. Uh, it's really been all over the place. NVIDIA, the biggest gainer on the AI story, is actually unchanged uh, on the month. But Amazon, Alphabet, Microsoft, to varying degrees to the downside, there's no relationship between the biggest gainers of the year, which is NVIDIA, and the extent of this tech pullback here. So NVIDIA's flat. Uh, others are down a little bit more. AMD's down about 10%. But remember, all of these stocks are up dramatically uh, on the year. Uh, there is some AI tentacles in the broader markets. It's nice to see gainers this year in industrials uh, and this month. Eaton and Ingersoll ran have a good month. And to a certain extent, there's a little AI story here. Eaton's big in power management. That's uh, significant. There's a lot of investment in enhancing labor productivity, power management comes into that uh, as part of an AI story. Uh, Ingersoll Rand is a big uh, industrial compressor company, and they're positioned for 
there's a reshoring story on there, uh, but there's also increased investing in automation that's helping them. So a little bit of tentacles uh, in AI. This um, big story, other than that, has been this money going into market money market funds this year and treasuries free yield. I know David mentioned the city upgrade. I just think it's very amusing that we have dividend payouts that are huge in these stocks now. Uh, and we have an analyst coming out saying you could support the dividend payouts despite the concerns, despite uh, the, the, the lead cable issues that are out there. Just take a look at these dividends here for these names here. The biggest names, the three biggest names out there, Ultra, which is always in the top, AT&T and Verizon. To give you some idea, Verizon paid 5% for years and years and years. In the last year, as the prices have dropped dramatically, there you go, 7.8%. That's a pretty high dividend to pay right now. Other than that, you know, you typically you get old school telecom oil and REITs out there. Look at what's appearing on the high dividend yield list for the first time in ages. Banks used to pay three to four percent dividend yields. That was very typical. Now these guys are up there in five, six. Key Corp is seven and a half percent dividend yield right now. So you want to talk about whether yields are safe right now. You can certainly talk about some of these banks and whether they're going to actually deal with that. Uh, these kinds of dividend yields. This hasn't happened in the past, guys. This is a, a characteristic of the bank drops that we saw in March and April. Other than that, the big story, we're going to wait for that jolts report at 10 o'clock Eastern time. Carl, back to you. All right, Bob. Yeah, that's going to be key, especially for bonds. We'll check that on our way out to break. Uh, we'll get jolts in about uh, 15 minutes. Michael Barr speaks this afternoon, a seven-year note auction also on deck. Dow's up 82 to start the Tuesday. Don't go away. It's going to be Alphabet's turn in the AI spotlight today as they kick off uh, Next23. Uh, Google Cloud announcing some new customers, some new partners, uh, some product innovations. Anything above 134 and a quarter is going to be your new intraday high for the year. We'll pay close attention to that with the Dow up 80 this morning. And by the way, don't forget, it is back to school time on Mad Money. This week, Jim continuing a special week of shows dedicated to his rules of investing and some of the market lessons he's learned over the years. Tune in tonight, 6 p.m. Eastern time. We're back in a moment. Amazon's chief Andy Jassy has a message to workers who do not want to return to the office. Quote, it's not going to work out for you. That's according to a report from Insider, which said Jassy made that statement during a meeting earlier this month. His basic take, guys, is it's uh, past the point of disagreeing. He's like, you can disagree, but you still got to commit. We're coming in at least three days a week. Yeah, we've, we, you know, over time, they've just simply amped up sort of the uh, the rhetoric, so to speak, or at least the threats to the point now where it's like, listen, if it doesn't work out for you to want to come to the office, not part of your lifestyle, well, then you're not a part of this company. Yeah. Um, and we have talked for some time about whether we would see some of the large employers start to gain more leverage or at least come to a point where they felt like this was a key in terms of running their business. We are at that point now, yeah. it would seem. By the way, we're still not talking about every day. We're talking more likely two to three days a week. Yeah. Um, Carl, you mentioned that Goldman Sachs uh, study. What I loved about it was uh, it references estimates of the productivity effects of work from home that range from a 19% drawdown on productivity to a 13% enhancement of productivity. So in other words, nobody has any nobody idea. Nobody has any idea still. It depends as to what's on how happened. you measure it, what you're right. considering. If you're the, the employer, the, you just want It's the, the intangibles that are much harder to measure yeah. as well. The cultural attachment, how important is that? Uh, the chance meetings and the things that might occur as a result of being together that are, um, again, much harder to quantify um, and or the well-being of the employees. I mean, I don't know if you guys have seen it. Uh, Alphabet, Google's got their new headquarters. It's just about to open, I think, in St. John's Terminal. It's Washington Street, right on the river. 
It is gorgeous. Sure. I walked by it yesterday. It is beautiful. Why people would not want well, to go to the office says, is beyond Well, everyone always says, I would love to be in the office if I didn't have a commute. Yeah, I mean, I that's guess. pretty well, much the line. Is It's, it's, a, it's um, rebelling against the travel. That said, guys, listen, we also focus, of course, on the continued decline of the office market, what that means for those who've been financing office buildings. And it is worth noting uh, some charts from Moody's uh, most recently uh, that, that sort of keep a, a focus on matured office loans. Uh, the, the rate of matured office loans that are currently delinquent, that means not making a monthly debt service payment, that's up to 27.6%. And that is much higher than the comparable delinquency rate of 16.7% in the second quarter of 2023. So this is a continued uh, problem and, and will be regardless of how many people return to the office, yeah. it would seem, in the it, near term. But it is interesting that it, it travels relatively slowly through the system as you'll, you know leases get repriced, banks try to come to terms, there's some recovery value. I don't know. It just seems like it's not a... It's not a market seizing up type of no, issue. It's I just a, right. a constant drag. Yes, it's yeah. a it's a constant drag. It's unclear whether it's going to be a crisis. Yeah. Yeah. Slow moving train wreck. We'll see. Uh, still circulating around 44.50 here. Uh, Dow's up almost 70 points. Jolts after the break. You've been listening to the opening bell on CNBC's Squawk on the Street. All opinions expressed by the Squawk on the Street participants are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of CNBC, NBC Universal, or their parent company or affiliates, and may have been previously disseminated by them on television, radio, internet, or another medium. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this podcast as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of an opinion. Such opinions are based upon information Squawk on the Street participants consider reliable, but neither CNBC nor its affiliates and or subsidiaries warrant its completeness or accuracy, and it should not be relied upon as such. To view the full Squawk on the Street disclaimer, please visit cnbc.com forward slash Squawk on the Street disclaimer. From a flat tire in the city to a dead battery on a distant drive, AAA is partnering with T-Mobile for Business to accelerate response times and get more drivers back on the road fast. Our nationwide connectivity powers location telematics, so AAA's fleet can find stranded drivers quickly while being fully equipped with the in-vehicle tools to have answers when they get there. This is elevating the member experience. This is AAA with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now.